So the question is, what do we do now? We have looked at what the Bible says about uh, homosexuality. We've looked at creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We've looked at Genesis 19 with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have looked at Romans chapter 1 where Paul tells us that the people in Rome were exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones. And so we have made our case biblically for why we believe what we believe. But I, I don't want us to leave this topic or this study unchanged in some way. So I don't just want you to be more knowledgeable. I don't want you to be able to uh, give an account for what you believe only. I want it to actually impact you and affect the way you live your life. So one of the questions is, how, how do we do that? How do we go from a study like this feeling like we can act differently than we may have before we came to this study? And so I have four things. I'm going to try to move pretty quickly, but I have four things, and I'm just going to jump right in. So Ephesians chapter 2, that's where we're going to begin. So where do we go from here? Number one, we embrace the whole gospel. So the gospel is both reconciliation and forgiveness. That is, reconciliation means we, having trusted in Jesus, we are made right with God. He reconciles our account. He takes our debt and he accounts Jesus as the payment for our debt. This is one of the things that we call like the grace of God, like his goodness, his love, and his mercy to us. That's part one of the gospel, and it's a good part. But it's not the whole gospel because part two is the gospel is also forgiveness. But forgiveness is not just something that happens like, oh, you know, Tyler has been forgiven. Like he's a, he's a forgiven person. You, if you have believed in Jesus, you are a forgiven person. But the thing we have to realize is that we're not just like forgiven in some sort of mystic way. We're forgiven of something specific. We are forgiven of our sin. And so we have been made right with God by the death of Jesus, but it's also our sin that brought about the death of Jesus. And so if we are to embrace the whole gospel, it means that, number one, we are sinners, and we have an extravagant inheritance through Jesus, but it came at the cost of his life. And so we never, not even after we trust in Jesus, we never get to minimize the fact that it's our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That word is really important. Dead. Because of your sin, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So there's, there's that like good part that we always jump to. We've been saved for the purpose of receiving immeasurable, infinite riches in heaven, right? We always kind of get there really quick. We get, we get to verse 7 super fast, but it means sometimes we skip verse 1. You, you were dead in sin, right? So it's, it's dead people being made alive for the purpose of receiving extravagant gifts in Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That means you did nothing but believe. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works or effort, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So embracing the whole gospel, and, and here's why we, we want to start here again as we apply this. Because if, if you happen to be someone who doesn't struggle with same-sex attraction at all, you're actually thinking, why are we still talking about homosexuality? Why does it take three weeks to talk about this topic? Or maybe you're thinking, I've been uncomfortable for three weeks because maybe I struggle with same-sex attraction or that's a particular temptation that I have. And you're thinking, I just want to stop this discussion. Well, the reason we have to start here, no matter who we are, is because we can't have an effective witness unless we embrace the whole gospel, meaning we see God as God sees us, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. So, so the gospel is not this. It's not fire insurance. If you have come into this room this evening and you're simply thinking, yes, I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian kid, my parents are believers, or maybe my parents aren't believers, but I'm still a church kid, and the gospel is just my thing to get the extravagant riches, then you've only understood half the gospel. But it's also not just kind of tipping the hat to the big man upstairs. Right? If you come to church enough times or if you establish a pattern of coming to church and kind of just being as good as possible, then you get the extravagant riches. Well, that's, that's not at all what Paul says in Ephesians. And it's certainly not what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. So talking about the gospel, John says this in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that is, heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, that is, as we walk in sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin or if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar 
and his word is not in us. Here's what I want you to understand about the gospel. Here's what I want you to understand about your belief in God. You can't really claim to know God or believe in God if you're unwilling to accept what he has revealed about himself. You can't claim to know the one true living God if you actually reject what he has revealed about himself and by extension what he has revealed about us. The very fact that he has taken time over the course of an entire book, as we know called the Bible, to tell us not only that we are sinners, but that he is providing a savior for our sin means that he is a gracious, loving father. It it means that telling people about their state in sin is necessary if they are going to actually understand who God really is. Because I think, like I said last week, it's not that God is looking from above and saying, sinner, awful sinner, horrible sinner. I don't know why whoever sits over here is always the worst sinner, but I'm just, I'm sorry, it's y'all. Every time on my left. Um, Maybe it's because I'm right-hand dominant and y'all are my people. Uh, Awful sinners to the left of the room. Can I get a woo-woo? Don't really do woo-woo. That's horrible. You just confess to being the worst sinners in the room. The reason we have to understand what our sin actually means before a holy, perfect, righteous God is not simply so we can know how bad we are, but rather so we can see how good and gracious and kind and merciful and loving and long-suffering God is. Again, last week I had said the very fact that we are here, if you are living in sin, if you have a pattern of habitual sin in your life, the only reason that you are still breathing, Romans chapter 2 says, is so God's kindness can be shown into your life in giving you an opportunity to repent. God doesn't just wipe out the sinners. I mean, there are instances where he gives them opportunity but, but he's not just looking and casting holy lightning bolts into this room right now. Instead, he's sending forth the gospel, the whole gospel, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and if we will cry out to him in our sin, he is able and willing to save us. But it takes accepting and believing and trusting the whole gospel. Not just the good and leaving out the sin, the whole gospel. Number two, where do we go from here? We have a clear biblical view of what's actually sin. So what, let, me, let me explain though. What I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm not actually talking about um, identifying certain types of sin in your life. So I, I'm not wanting you to be like, oh yeah, this is sin because I know biblically it's sin. Well, that's, that's easy. Right? There are lists in the Bible that give sins, and then you can kind of infer what other things in your life are sin. What I'm talking about is when something becomes sin. Right? So we're not talking about certain types of sin. We're talking about when something becomes sin. 
Because y'all realize, like, good news for us, just because we have the capacity or the ability to sin doesn't mean we're actually sinning. Y'all realize that? Anyone in here um, think that you're able to tell a lie? All of you, put your hands up. Left side doesn't even lift their hands. We already know you're the worst. <laughs> right? Just because we believe ourselves able to lie doesn't mean we're actually committing the sin of lying right now. Right? Y'all understand that? So what we have to understand as, as believers, what we have to understand as church kids is when something becomes sin. We have to have a biblical view of when something is actually sin. Because we do a lot of weird stuff in our head where we're like, well, you know, if I just like keep it up here, then it's not really sin, right? No one, no one knows it's not sin. Or if we like can convince ourselves that our back talking of our parents is only because they deserve it, it's not sin, right? Mom, you deserve this. Tell me again to clean my room. It's already clean. I'm serious. Just don't look under the bed. No. Get away from the bed, mom. It's already clean. Know your role, mom. I'm just joking, mom. I love you. Right? Then we're like, well, I mean, you know, she, she was being kind of difficult. It wasn't sin. She was being difficult, and I was just responding appropriately. We do weird stuff like that. But we need to have a biblical view of when something actually is sin. Just because we're able to sin, just because we are born sinners, doesn't mean we're always sinning. Doesn't mean we're always committing the act of sin. Unless that ability becomes action. Action mentally or action physically. So this is the distinction between temptation and sin. So James chapter 1 is really helpful to help us to understand sin. James chapter 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Listen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, Temptation then, according to James, is when our sinful desire, right, the old man inside of us, the, 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 the part of us that wants to like backtalk mom, right, the, the part of us that is, is wanting to cheat on a test because we didn't study and it's the easiest way out, the, the part on us that wants to gossip or talk behind someone's back, that sinful person inside of us is what brings about temptation. And so you have this old person inside of you, if you are a believer, that's saying, yeah, just, just do it. Just do it. No one will know. Actually, this is good for you because this is, this is going to make you better. 
You're going to be cooler. You're going you're gonna to have better grades. You're going to be in less trouble. You're going to get what you want. That person, that friend who talks behind your back, they're finally going to get what they deserve. And the old man inside of you starts to tempt you and trick you and entice you. That's temptation. But sin is when we indulge in those selfish desires. When we look at the old man and say, you know what, you're right. It's, it's just one time. I've, I've got to make these grades if I'm ever going to get into the college I want to go to. No one will ever know. It's just one time. Right, you can kind of like picture the devil and the angel, except it's not that. That's only in like old cartoons. But it's like, it's actually a little Tyler. He doesn't have horns. He looks just like me, but he's over here and he's just talking trash. And then on this side, you have the good Tyler, and he still looks just like me, except he doesn't talk trash. He's not super smart, but he's just there trying to follow God's will. It, it's when the redeemed side of me says, yeah, you know what, you're right, it's just once. I'm going to do it. Temptation, when we give in to our selfish desires for sin, births sin. But we have to distinguish what is temptation and what is sin because in the realm of temptation, we're not yet sinning, but we should be fighting. So this means that all kinds of different people can have all kinds of different temptations. All kinds of different capacities to all kinds of different types of sinful desires. But those <laughs> temptations don't become sin until we act on them, until we give in, until we serve ourselves in those desires. That's exactly what James is saying. So, so what does that mean? It, it means, and, and I believe this, that same-sex attraction is possible. That, that someone can be tempted to the sin of same-sex attraction and yet not be sinning if they're not living a gay lifestyle. One of the things we need to be really careful about is to not create this false group of people who struggle with same-sex attraction and they simply can't be Christians because they struggle with sin. <clears throat> And yet we have a whole group of people over here that struggle with the right sins, and so we're all good. I don't think James has a category like that. I think what James is saying is, listen, if you are tempted to any type of sin and you put off that temptation, you fight that temptation, then you're not actually sinning. You're actually exerting the godly, holy life that God has created in you by His Spirit. You're battling. You're, you're kicking Satan. You're kicking the weird little Tyler on this shoulder. You're kicking him right in the chest and putting him in his place. But we have to realize that there are no sinners who have trusted in Jesus and are actively fighting their sin that are disqualified from Christianity simply because they struggle against a sin that we don't like. And we're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about anything. We, we don't get to tell believers who actually fight sin that their sins are like not the right ones. 
sorry, but if you just had some better sin, you're welcome. But until then, you need to get this thing figured out. So how do we look at that in our life? How do we fight temptation properly? How, how do we fight temptation before it actually gives birth to sin? Because that's really important. And so I have a, I have a dumb illustration for you, but I think it's helpful. You, you know, a skilled master hunter would never go onto the African plains into, into a safari on a hunt and just haphazardly walk around the safari. They wouldn't just like casually stroll by a thicket or a bush and be like, oh yeah, you know, like, cool, look at that. Man, look at the, that, that, that little area of tall grass and sticks. Wow, it's so beautiful. I'm going to walk right beside it. Why? Because a master hunter walks around the plains of Africa assuming that there are predators everywhere they go. That, that there is no place safe to just casually stroll around, you know, check your phone, eat a Snickers, whatever you're doing. Why? Because a master hunter realizes the dangers that lie on the plain before them. James tells us that when we are tempted, what's actually happening is we are being, in, we are being lured or enticed by our sinful desire. Those are, those are predatory terms. And so what James is saying is, listen, your life is the African plain. And there is a sinful you that is crouching all around the thickets waiting to pounce. And so what a master hunter does is they look around and they say, okay, Right here, I have a clear view and there are no predators. It's, it's, it's obvious that in this area, there's nothing dangerous as of right now in terms of what I can see. But over here, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to walk through this area because there's some tall grass here. There's, there's a cluster of trees here. And it seems like this is a great place for a lion or one of those weird, crazy, rabie-ridden like baboons right up there. So I'm going to stay away from this area. Why? Because there is the potential of imminent death here. And what James is saying is you need to look at your life and you need to identify the areas. You need to identify the moments. You need to identify the friend group that brings you so close into temptation that the old you can, can come up anytime and say, yeah, do it. All of your friends are doing it. Just do it. It, it doesn't matter how you talk. No one's going to know. This group of friends, they're cool. They're actually good people. They have some weird views, but it's no big deal. You'll fit in if you just talk like this. And the next thing you know, temptation has given birth to sin. When is the right moment to fight temptation? It's before you're actually tempted. Do you want to know when a master hunter fights their prey? which is actually a predator. You know, I've never known anyone that's like, man, I went on this African safari and it's so sweet. I killed this awesome lion. Oh, sweet, how'd you do it? Like, what bait did you use? Well, I was the bait. Um, 
So what happens is they send you out into this thicket, you get attacked, and then when the, the lion has its, your neck in its mouth, you, you, like, you, you shoot it, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're dying quickly, but you, it's like, pew, and then it's awesome. You get to take a picture with the lion, but you're actually bleeding out, so you have to get to the hospital very quickly. No one fights like that. We're not called to fight our sin once we're actually in sin, once our temptation has us pinned in the corner. We're supposed to say, you know what, I shouldn't take my phone into the bathroom because it's dangerous. I shouldn't be alone with this group of friends because it's dangerous. I shouldn't just assume that I'm okay because I go to church because it's dangerous. I shouldn't think that something like homosexuality is no big deal and people should just be able to figure out what they want to find. It's dangerous. We don't fight sin when it has our neck in its mouth. Number three, we love without discrimination and speak truth without apology. So here's what I want to tell you before we even start this one. The world will not accept this, but it's still our responsibility. We love without discrimination and we speak truth without apology. And what I'm telling you, young Christian person, the world will not accept this. But it is still your responsibility. I I think one of our culture's greatest contradictory statements ever is that you can't love someone unless you embrace who they are or who they present themselves to be. You cannot love me unless you accept me as I am. Right? And then even worse than that, to tell someone they are wrong in in the way maybe they're thinking or in the way they're living, that's actually narrow-mindedness. Right? So you... You can't love me unless you accept me the way I present myself. And if you tell me I'm wrong, you're narrow-minded. Well, this is actually exactly the opposite of what Jesus tells every single one of us. So in, in Matthew 16, there's, a, there's this moment, Matthew 16, 24 through 25, where Jesus is telling his disciples what discipleship looks like. And and he's telling them the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he says this in 24 and 25. And then Jesus told his disciples, if any one of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So when the world tells us, you can't love me unless you embrace me as I present myself, Jesus would say, actually, the way to God is to deny yourself. And so while the world is telling us we can't actually love and speak the truth of the gospel, Jesus is saying, well, before we even get to that point, what I need you to do is I need you to to deny yourself. I I need you to deny who you think you are. I, I need you to be willing to give up all of the good possibilities in your life Put those aside and you need to take up the cross of Jesus and you need to follow him. You need to be willing to sacrifice everything about you for the name of Jesus. Why? Because he sacrificed everything. 
Jesus is not just a man. He is God incarnate. He is the God man. He is fully God and fully man. And that's the person who died on the cross. So to follow Jesus literally means denial of self and pursuit of Jesus. So Matthew 22, Jesus is um, 36 through 39. He is talking to um, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, and they're saying, hey, hey, teacher, since you're so smart, what is the greatest law? And, and Jesus tells them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The reality is for a believer, the way that we are to love people is to love them in a way that we would love ourselves. Well, if I'm really a follower of Jesus, guess what one way I love myself is? Through self-denial. Through putting off the old man. Through looking at the thickets honestly and saying, Tyler, you cannot resist that temptation. Stay away from that. Right? You, you can't be with this group of friends and not sin. You need to find new friends. Tyler, you can't be alone in your bedroom. You're not safe there. There, there, there are a number of things where I have to actually deny myself for the sake of pursuing Jesus. And when the Bible says love God and love people like you love yourself, it means that I love God and I point them to God and the reality that He is a good, gracious Father willing to save us, but I also want to love people in a way that says, listen, you're a sinner just like me. The gospel, it shined light into my life. It revealed my sin to me. I confessed my sin to Jesus, and He accepted me. Loving people is not just accepting who they present themselves to be, because I don't love myself that way. And Jesus does not call me to love myself that way. He calls me to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. And on top of that, he says, listen, what does it matter if you gain the whole world and you lose your life? Number four, and finally, we... What do we do from here? We commit to fight with those struggling against same-sex attraction and every other sin. Christians are called to bear the burden of war together. Right? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have trusted in Christ, then you are on the front lines of the battle with the rest of us. All of us who have been forgiven through the cross of Christ, who have been covered by the blood of Jesus, we are standing on the front lines of the battle. And to your right and to your left are other brothers and sisters in Christ. But the thing about war is that in war, there's inevitably going to be casualties. There are going to be those who are entrapped by the enemy. And when this happens, we are to be so engaged in this battle that we see a brother or sister fall and we run to their aid and we scoop them up and we get them out of the line of fire and we tend to their wounds. 
Galatians chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, though, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what are we to do after learning all of this, after, after thinking of people who may be struggling with same-sex attraction, but even expanding it to that, the people in your life, maybe yourself, as you are struggling with sin, as you are fighting the battle with sin, as maybe you feel like you're losing that battle in one area of your life, what are we to do? We are to keep a keen eye on the enemy. We are to see the enemy. We are to see the ways in which he is attacking us, in the ways in which he is attacking the church, the ways in which he is attacking our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when they are wounded, or when we are wounded, we run to our brothers and sisters' aid. We drag them off the battlefield, and we care for them gently. We tell them the ways in which they have sinned, the ways in which they have been entrapped by their sin, and we speak the gospel to them. We give them the medicine of the gospel, and then we prepare for the next battle. We commit to being those who are willing to battle over and over and over again. I want you to realize that there are people in my life who have come to me with the same sin over and over again. And I have yet to push someone away when they are willing and ready to fight that sin. Because I want you to know something. I am a sinner saved only by the grace of God. There is no good in me that has not been given to me by God. So as we end, I want us to realize that as we fight against sin, there are no this one's better than that one types of sin. Or sins that are simply too awful for me to commit. You shouldn't think those things in your mind. And we shouldn't see people as their sin. Every human, Genesis 1 and 2, is made in the image and likeness of God. People aren't the totality of their sin. But our sin... If we are unwilling to repent of it, places a chasm between us and God. If we embrace our sin, we do not have access to God. That's why we have to embrace the whole gospel. That there are good, wonderful, marvelous, unimaginable gifts awaiting for us in heaven, but that we are sinners in need of a Savior.
So we shouldn't just see people as their sin. We should see them as ourselves. We should see them as sinners in need of a Savior like we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we should fight for them with grace and truth like we would fight for ourselves. With the whole counsel of God's Word. Loving, indiscriminately, and speaking truth unapologetically. Because we are fighting for their life like we would fight for our life.